Well, conventional wisdom says that there are three subjects that you should not discuss publicly with others. Politics, religion, and money. Right? Bringing these subjects up is considered a faux pas because they might cause others to feel uncomfortable. Uh, full disclosure, I'm going to be speaking about money this morning, and there's a good chance that something I say is going to make you feel uncomfortable. But our attachment and our use of money is a spiritual matter. Right? We can't just compartmentalize our spending habits and try to keep them closed off from God. Our finances are a part of what whole life discipleship looks like. So this morning, I'm going to be giving us an introduction to what the Bible calls tithing. Now, I've got three B's to try to help organize our time, help us remember. We've got Bible, we've got benefits, and we've got budget. First, I'm going to give an overview of what the Bible has to say on the subject, both in the Old and then the New Testaments. Second, I want to expand a bit as to why tithing is beneficial for us and for God's kingdom. And finally, I want to give you some real practical applications of how to consider tithing and this kind of getting to the brass tacks dealing with our budgets. So a few disclosures before we begin. So two week, weeks ago, I gave some historical background on Paul. Uh, you know, at the end of Philippians, as we wrapped that up, he was thanking the Philippian church for uh, his, his, their financial gift towards him. And I shared that there were a number of charlatan philosophers who preyed on the people, who manipulated the people for money. And I'm acutely aware that there are plenty of these sorts of hucksters in the church of Jesus Christ today. There are a lot of folks in the church who are using the platform to try to line their own pockets, taking advantage of, of others. And, and so I just want to kind of make clear, especially if this is like your first time here, be like, oh my gosh, all this church talks about is giving. You know, outside of our weekly invitation for the offering, we don't focus on giving regularly. It's not something we talk about. But as I said a moment ago, I don't want to go to the opposite extreme, right, and completely ignore it because it does have spiritual benefits, spiritual ramifications in our lives. Now, second is this. All of us approach giving from different places. We all have different attachments to money. I, for one, I, I'm a little bit on the more miserly side. You could say frugal, but it's probably more like miserly. Sarah, my wife, is much more generous, and that's actually, she's been real good to me to help me be a little bit less tight-fisted with my finances. If something I say this morning brings some pangs of conviction, I'd encourage you to pay attention to those feelings, especially if you are on that frugal side like me. Most of us don't like to sit in that tension of anxiety, what psychologists would call cognitive dissonance. So pay attention. Let those feelings figure out why you might be feeling that, that, you know, that, those negative feelings or that anxiety. And, and I, you know, as we sang this morning in that last song, Make Room, right, my identity is not based upon what I do for God, right? Here at this church, we, we support grace and we reject a performance-driven Christianity, meaning that my identity with God, my value and worth in God's eyes is not dependent upon my giving. So I just want to make that clear, right? Rest in that sufficiency 
of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to follow along and pull out your Bibles, you're welcome to. I've got a bunch of passages that we're going to go through pretty quick, so I might even get, be done with it before you even get to the next one, but I'm going to leave, I, I, I'm going to put all this, the, the passages on the screens just in case you want to write them down and go back to them yourself. Um, so the first is going to be Genesis 14, find the right one, there we go, Genesis 14, 17 to 20. So in this passage, Abraham has just won a military victory against some Canaanites who had kidnapped his nephew, Lot. Now, following this victory, a figure named Melchizedek appears on the scene. We don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek, um, except what the text says is that he was a priest of the Most High God. And so in this passage, we see Melchizedek pronounce a blessing upon Abraham. His name's still Abram at this time. And in response, verse 20, Abram says this, or it says this, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that word that is translated tenth in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word ma'aser, which literally means a tenth part but it's usually translated in our English Bibles with the word tithe. And so when you hear people talk about a tithe, that's what it is, one-tenth. Ten percent of the goods that Abram or Abraham had recovered from the battle. Now, this passage is, is important for us to understand because this interaction predates the law. This interaction took place about 400 years before the law was given to Moses and the Israelites. So the next passage that speaks to the matter is focused on the law. So this is Leviticus 27, 30 to 33. Again, I'm only going to read verbatim a couple of these. I'm summarizing most of them for you. Now, what we find here in the law in Leviticus is God's expectation for the Hebrew people as they dwell in the promised land. And this passage here is what set the standard for the tithe in Israel. Now, what we see in the text is, if you scan through it, is that it, the foundational principle is that one-tenth of everything of the land that produced belonged to God. Whether it was the crops that grew in the field, whether it was the fruit from the trees, whether it was the livestock that grazed on the side of the mountain, a tenth of those goods were to be set apart for the Lord. They were considered holy for the Lord, set apart. That's what the word holy literally means. And then if we were to flip over to Numbers 18, chapter 18, verse 21, it provides the destination of those tithes, where those tithes went. They were to go to the Levites for their service to the Lord. Now, the Levites, again, if you don't know... Um, kind of Jewish history, that's okay. Uh, I'll do my best to summarize it. If you have questions, you can always ask me after the fact. But the Levites were one of the tribes. There were 12 tribes in Israel, and the Levites were the only tribe that were not given um, a, a stake in the land. They were not given any type of inheritance. They didn't own property, if you will. And the Levites were tasked with the religious functions of the Israelites. They were everything from the priests to the musicians to the janitors of the temple or tabernacle. This tribe, as I said, did not receive an inheritance of the land, so they were at the mercy of their extended family. Right? All the other tribes 
were told, you know, you dwell here, you dwell here, you settle here, and they could use that land to cultivate food or profit. So the Levites were to subsist, they were to live on that tithe that their kind of distant cousins would, would bring to the Lord. But then we would flip to Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29, that there were also seasons where the tithe didn't go exclusively to the Levites, but also to the sojourner, basically the immigrant, the fatherless, which would describe the orphan, and the widow. These were all individuals in the Old Testament and even in our society today who were in vulnerable positions. They didn't have the means to support themselves. And so God's law instructed the Hebrew people to take their tithe, which belonged to the Lord, and use it to support these groups of people. So the Levites and then these groups of vulnerable people. Now I have one last Old Testament passage um, that I, again, I'm just trying to give you a very brief, I know this is like a 10,000 foot view of, of how the tithe is understood. And this, is, this book ends the, the Hebrew understanding. This is the, from the prophet Malachi. So by the time of Jesus, that Jesus walked the earth, this would have been the, the Bible, their Bible at the time, and so these are the passages that helped influence that setting. So this is Malachi 3, 8 to 9. So in this passage, uh, the, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi. This was about 430 years before the birth of Christ. And what God says in this passage is he calls the Hebrew people thieves. He says he equates the people's refusal to fully contribute the tithe. They haven't been giving their tithes to the Lord. And he said that you are robbing me. God says by withholding your resources that they were stealing from him. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of a background, right? In short, what we saw, the tithe was 10% of the goods that they gained throughout the year, that it belonged to God, that it was to be used for the purposes that God had communicated to the people, and to not give the tithe was the same as robbing God, and something that actually is in that, in that passage is that God has cursed them because of that. So that, that's the Old Testament foundation. Now, we are Christians. We have the New Testament, which is further revelation of what God has to say. And so as Christians, our understanding of the Old Testament always needs to be tempered. We need to filter it through this lens of the teachings of Jesus and the other New Testament books. Because as you read the Old Testament, you're going to find not every law continues to be applicable to Christians today. I know plenty of Christians who love bacon, who might enjoy eating shrimp. Those were not things that the Jewish people could do or, nor that they continue to do. So how do we understand what laws continue to be mandated to us and which ones do not? So specific to the tithe, what does Jesus have to say about the tithe? Very little, in fact. He, he didn't talk specifically about the tithe very often, but something that Jesus had a lot to say about was the place of money in our lives. So a couple passages that I want to highlight for us. So the first is Matthew 23, 23. Jesus had this to say to the contemporary religious leaders. Quote, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, 
and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So here what we see Jesus doing is we see him acknowledging the tithe. He says, he's, he's highlighting that these religious leaders have been obeying the tithe. But he says there's more important matters in the law that they've completely missed. In fact, I was just reading, um, if you've been following along our, our Bible reading plan, uh, this morning was Micah 6, and so Micah 6, 8 is one of those famous passages. And Micah 6 is basically saying you, it's God's judgment, words of judgment on Israel, saying you guys are not living the way that you ought to. Like you're bringing me offerings, which are good, but you're missing the weightier matters of the law, to love justice, to love mercy, walk humbly before our God. So Jesus is saying something similar that they've missed out these bigger, these bigger deals like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But in the process of critiquing them, what Jesus does is he does affirm the tithe. Right? The second half of that verse says you should have focused on these weightier matters, but without putting aside the former, i.e. the tithe. Right? The people should be doing both is what Jesus was suggesting. The other place that the gospel mentions the tithe is the story of Jesus, the story Jesus tells, where two men went up to the temple to pray, right? The Pharisee who was self-righteous and the tax collector who wouldn't even lift his face up before God. So, uh, let me put it up, Luke 18, 9 through 14. And one of the characteristics in this passage is says that the Pharisee is proud of is that he fasts twice a week and he gives a tithe of everything that he gets. Now, nowhere does Jesus say that the tithe is an erroneous practice, but what he's saying here is it does not justify someone, right? Like we sang. It's not about religion. It's not about our attempts to reach God. Our worth and standing before God is not based upon how we measure up to certain behaviors. So Jesus doesn't speak much about the tithe specifically, but I'll tell you what, he had a lot to say about the place of money in our lives. And I think for those of us in particular who live in a society like ours, which is very affluent, which is very opulent, we should perk up our ears when Jesus talks about money. When it comes to the law, what we see Jesus do is not diminish it, but quite the opposite, often expand it. For instance, when it came to murder, Jesus says, just avoiding killing someone is not enough. But if you've been angry and called your brother or sister a fool, you have committed murder in your heart. Right? About lust, he says, it's not just about avoiding the act of infidelity, but just by looking, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. When it comes to money, right, Jesus said things like this. So he's got, I'll put both of these up. They come pretty quick. Matthew 6, 1 to 4. He says, when you give to the poor, do it in secret. Don't use it as an opportunity for everyone to, to, to see what, all this good work that you're doing. Mark 12, 41 to 44, we looked at this a few months ago in our small group. It's the widow who gives the last couple pennies that she has. And Jesus highlights her because he gave, she gave out of her abundance all that she had to live on. Right? When, when it came to someone trying to figure out the path to eternal life, Jesus says, your obedience to the law, this is the rich young ruler, 
It's in, in Matthew 19. Jesus says, your obedience to the law is not enough. Give all you have to the poor and follow me. Right? That's one of those passages that we like to, to you know, say, okay, it's not universal. It's just specific to this guy. So, like, we can wipe the sweat off our brow. We don't have to, like, give everything that we have to the poor. It doesn't apply to us. And, you know, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to agree that it's not a universal call for every Christian to give up all of their wealth. But I think what Jesus says next is really important, and we need to hear it. It says this is Matthew 19, 23, and 24. Jesus says right on the heels of this, because the guy walks away. He's sad because he had great wealth. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those are some pretty serious words for us to consider. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a camel go through the eye of a needle. They're pretty small. Camels are pretty big. How about here? Here's another one. Uh, Luke 20, verse, uh, excuse me, Luke 6, verse 20 and 24. This is like Luke's version of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then just a few verses later, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus is giving blessings to the poor and woes to the wealthy. I mean, Jesus goes so far as to call mammon, which is an Aramaic word for wealth, as an adversarial god to Yahweh. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and despise the other. He says outright, you cannot serve God and mammon, God and wealth. Now, that seems crystal clear to me. That's uh, Matthew 6.24. So what does all of this have to do with tithing? I would argue that the Bible is not clear on the continued practice of tithing in the New Testament, right? following the gospel of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think you could make a case, a reasonable case, either for its abandonment or its continuation. It's a gray area. But even if we are not bound to the obligation to tithe. I think the language of Jesus has not diminished its importance, or at least the importance of wealth in our lives, but it has instead escalated the call to us as God's people to be generous and open-handed with our resources. A pastor many years ago said something that has stuck with me, and he said, speaking about this, He said, the question is not, how much do I have to give, but rather, how much do I dare keep? When we're focused on how much do I have to give, it's almost like, what's that minimum amount, right? What's that? It's like trying to put God in a box or find a formula, right? How much do I have to give God? Whereas instead, we should be thinking, how much do I dare keep? And so as a result, my suggestion, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt, But my suggestion is to see that 10% tithe that we find in the Old Testament as a baseline, not out of obligation, not out of of the law, not that we're not being obedient um, because our righteousness is is not based upon whether or not we give the tithe. But through the gospel, 
We are free to be obedient. We're free to be generous in this, what's implicit in this tithe because of God. God has been so generous and has given so much to us, and so we're free to be generous, both back to Him and to the world that we live in. So I think that's what the Bible teaches about. Again, not that whether or not the tithe is relevant to us is not what's important, but I like the tithe as a baseline, as kind of the minimum of a threshold we can set for ourselves of what does that generosity look like. And so let me turn a little bit to the benefits of tithing, why we ought to give, why I believe it's an important spiritual practice for us. So first, this is part of how God's kingdom expands. We saw from Numbers 18 that the tithe was how the Levites were funded in their work of serving the Lord and serving the people. You know, you could call that like gospel proclamation. It wasn't gospel proclamation then, but, you know, proclamation of the Lord or service to the Lord. But then we saw in Deuteronomy passage that highlighted, you know, that, that those resources were also to be used for, um, you know, those who were hurting, those who were oppressed, care for the disenfranchised, the vulnerable. So the tithe was used for both, service to the Lord, but also kind of what we would call social justice or community support. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, he wrote in the second century, and he said that wealth was neutral. Wealth wasn't good or bad. I got one more passage, my last passage I'm sharing for you this morning. 1 Timothy 6.10, often misquoted. You've probably heard it before. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that before? Yeah, it's a misquote. That's not what the passage says. The passage says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not the problem, at least according to Paul. So Clement suggested that wealth was neutral, and that Christians should use wealth for good purposes, supporting churches, caring for the poor, expanding the kingdom of God. Many centuries later, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist denomination, said that Christians should seek to make as much money as they can and give away as much money as they can. Right? These historic church figures suggest that if wealth is in its proper place, it can help to expand and support God's work in our world. And in order for these opportunities to continue, they need financial support. But beyond kind of that, those pragmatic or practical elements of tithing, I think we need to consider that there is a spiritual benefit to tithing as well. We saw that Jesus was very critical of those who held wealth. How do we, how do we ensure that we're serving God and not our wallets? Right? How do we know whether or not it's God that we're serving or mammon that we're serving? And I believe that tithing, the practice of tithing, helps us keep resources in their proper place. All right, two weeks ago, we finished the letter of Philippians with Paul's note of thanks to the Philippian church for their gift. And in the same breath that he was saying thank you to them, he made it clear. He was like, thanks, but I, I didn't really need it thanks, but I, I wasn't like seeking it out, Because right? he says that he's experienced abundance and need. He knows what it is to experience plenty and hunger. He's experienced the full gamut of those, and he says in all of those stages, in every stage of life, it was God who sustained him in that time. Paul learned how to be content with what the Lord had provided him when the Lord had provided it. Now, this is a really difficult lesson for us to grasp, and I, I shared this two weeks ago, because the primary message of our culture is the opposite. 
we are told time and time again why we should be discontented with our life unless we purchase whatever product is being paraded in front of us. Buy this car and you'll have all kinds of fun family excursions. You know, buy this toothpaste and your breath will never stink. I, whatever it is, you are insufficient unless you buy whatever it is that we're being advertised to. Our whole culture revolves around our economy. Like, it, it, you know, following the, the, the terrorist attacks of September 11th back in 2001, President George Bush had this great long speech to the American people, and he told them to return to their normal lives. And what examples did he give of that? He said, go shopping for your families, book trips to Disney World. His philosophy of life was spend money, basically. Tithing, I would argue, is an antidote to our culture of consumerism. When we give 10% of our income to God's purposes, then it means that we are forced to learn what it means like, to be satisfied in having less. We have to be forced to be satisfied with what we need as opposed to what we would want. You know? The discipline of tithing means that my family might not be able to take the vacation that we would like to go on or have the size, a bigger house that we might want, or a nicer car. Now, I will say this, that there, I've known plenty of Christians who have taken Wesley's advice. They have made plenty of money, and they have been very, very generous with their goods. So I'm not saying that, that the Christian cannot have anything nice. But that 10% threshold helps to keep our souls in check. Because tithing requires sacrifice, regardless of what lo- level of income you have. Whether you're rich or you're poor, to give away 10% of your income means that there are things that you're going to have to say no to. And we're invited to be content in what we have. Some try to take tithing and make it a formula that, like, forces God's blessing upon us. Like, if I give, then somehow, like, God is obligated to me to give me, the, you know, a Ferrari or, you know, whatever my heart desires an abundance, you know. It's, it's almost like an invest, some people use it as an investment strategy, right? If I give X amount of dollars, God's going to bring it back like the way the lottery would, you know, double, twofold. We don't, we don't see those promises in the Bible. God promises He'll provide for us. Right? Our reward for tithing is not about what we get back materially, but we're invited to get more of God. Because God says when you're faithful to give, He's going to be enough for us. He's going to fill in those cracks that we need and provide. And remember, all of this, this is all predicated on grace. When you are in Christ, you cannot, Sarah said it earlier today, you cannot earn one extra iota of God's love by giving. And you can't lose it if you don't. The purpose is not to try to force God's hand. He is enough And when we give, we empty ourselves in ways that invites God to be the one that fills in the gaps. Our giving is not mandated. We're not mandated to give. As Christians, your salvation is not based upon it. But we want to make sure that we don't go the opposite direction and say, well, what does it matter anyway? And neglect its importance. So let me start this process of wrapping up by giving you, this is the budget section, giving you some real practical things to consider when it comes to tithing. Let me throw some statistics your way. Christians on average 
give 2.5% of their income. 2.5%. So that's one-fourth of that 10% threshold that I've been commenting on. Now, what I find staggering about that statistic that I think reveals how uh, tight-fisted we are with our resources, right? Because we often think, mine, it's mine. But tithing is about saying, God, this is all yours. It's just on loan to me. But what I find staggering about that statistic is the Great Depression, Christians gave an average of 3.3% of their income. So during what was considered the worst stage of our national economy, Christians gave a higher percentage of their resources than they do today. So how do we understand the tithe? Here's one question that I get all the time. Do you tithe on your gross salary or your net salary? Right? I'm going to advocate, again, take everything I say that the Bible is not clear on this. I, I think it's clear, but a case could be made. Either way, I'm always going to advocate for the gross salary because God should get his cut before Uncle Sam gets his. The Bible routinely describes offerings to be the first fruits. Right? We are supposed to give our best and brightest. You know, we're supposed to give God from the top not from the bottom of the barrel when all we've got left is scraps. So I, again, advocate uh, gross. Who should the tithe, that 10% go to? Now, again, I've I've heard a number of pastors advocate that that 10% needs to go to the local church, and any giving outside of that is on top of the 10%. I disagree. I disagree with that sentiment. When we look at passages like that Deuteronomy 14 passage, we see that the focus was multifaceted. It wasn't merely on the operations of the temple and to support the livelihood of its priests, but also to care for the poor, the alienated in their midst. There are a lot of really good ministries in our world doing really good work for the gospel of Jesus Christ that are not part of the local church. Maybe if the local church did all of those things, it would all go to the local church, but we, we don't have that. And so the language that I like to use is kingdom-minded organizations. These are organizations that might be spreading the proclamation of the gospel, or maybe they're doing poverty alleviation work, but it's all done in the name of Jesus Christ for the sake of his kingdom. Just to contrast it, you know, United Way. United Way is a great organization. They do a lot of good, but they're not kingdom-minded. And so personally, I would suggest that's not the type of organization that the tithe should go to. Again, I'm not trying to create law. I'm not trying to make regulations for you. These are just my opinions at this point. Now, my rule of thumb is that the largest chunk of my tithe does go to the local church. Our family gives about 5% of our income, so half of our tithe, to this church. And then we give 5% of our income to a number of other ministries in the region or around the globe. And, you know, I, I, I heard this on a podcast a year or so ago, but I thought it was pretty neat. There are some churches, that, and it would take work, so I probably won't actually be able to do it, but there's some churches that, you know, track when they give their budget presentation is they track all the giving that their parishioners do. And so when it comes time for that budget presentation, it's like, look, here is what these folks gave to our local organization, but look at all these other things that folks in our congregation gave to supporting the work and the kingdom of God. I mean, for full transparency, just to give you an example of how we partition our tithes. So as I said, we give a little over half of our tithe here to this church, but then our family supports three kids through Compassion International. 
We support staff workers for the CCO. It's a parachurch ministry working with college students. We also give to their diversity, equity, and inclusion fund, which helps to support staff of color who historically struggle with, with fundraising because of things like the racial wealth gap that exists in our society. We give to the Holy Post. Right? Sky Jatani, I, I'm, you know, it's kind of like a pastor to me. He helps guide me, and he, he, he gives me um, kind of frameworks, pastoring me. We also support World Relief, which is a Christian agency that's on the front lines of humanitarian needs and crises around the globe. Right? These are all kingdom-minded organizations seeking to see God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So here's my last application. You know, maybe you've listened to this message and felt like, Chuck, yep, we've been, I've been tithing for a while, no problem. But maybe there are some of you who are listening to what I'm saying and feeling like, man, there's like a little bit of a tug of conviction. You might acknowledge that there's some deficiency to maybe where you ought to be and where you actually are in your giving. And that's okay. I'm prone to saying that God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. So God loves you. Again, I don't want you, you shouldn't feel condemnation. There is no condemnation in those who are in Jesus Christ. Do not feel condemnation if you recognize that deficiency. God loves you regardless of your giving level for his kingdom. But I think that God wants us to experience the spiritual benefit of giving sacrificially, of making room for him to be that, uh, the, the one who sustains us in that time, right? The greatest of which is more of his presence in our lives. The best way to determine your level of giving is to budget. It's f- by far better than waiting until tax time because they'll give you a little like percentage of what you gave, you know, what you can write off every year to do that ret- retroactively. But I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of budgeting overall. For many, many years in my marriage, Sarah and I did not budget. Um, and you kind of feel like you've got to work for your money as opposed to getting your money to work for you. And so budgeting allows us to give every dollar in our bank account a job and to set it aside, to literally sanctify it, its purpose. Tim Keller used to say that a budget is a moral document. He'd say, show me someone's, you know, the ledger of someone's bank account, and I can tell you where their heart is, what they care about more than anything in the world, right? Our budgets reveal what our allegiances are. But with the budget, let's just say you put it together and you say, I'm I'm actually giving that average of 2.5% of my income. What a budget allows you to do is allows you maybe to stretch for 5% next year, maybe 7% the year after that. Because tithing is not going to happen by accident. You got to make a plan. You got to discipline yourself to do it. But it's also not going to happen overnight. You might not be able to go from a 2.5 right to a 10% level of giving like that. It might be something you need to work in. So, you know, just if budgeting is something you struggle with, like, let me know. I've done a number of budgeting um, workshops for those trying to get their money to work for them, like I said. Um, but, you know, as 2023 is getting ready to draw to a close, like, this would be a good time for a tune-up. Use the budget to set your expectations for 2024. Maybe take into account any of those year-end raises at work or bonuses that go into effect. Because the Lord is honored with our generosity. When we give, we mimic the generosity of God. Paul tells us in Romans 8.32 that God gave. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
How can we also not give of ourselves back to him and his people? Again, not to earn God's love, but because we already have it. All right. I have a, a couple questions. I'll post these on Facebook and uh, the website um, to think about this week. So based on biblical evidence, maybe there are some passages you can think of that I didn't bring up today, and that there's probably plenty. How do you think the Christians should consider giving or tithing as a part of their spiritual life? I would say everything is spiritual. So our bank accounts are not set apart from God, but it is a way that we honor God. So thinking about that. Second is, what is tithing? Why does tithing provide space to receive more of God? How does that work? And then lastly, like, look at your finances this week. What percent of your budget are you giving to kingdom-minded organizations? And, you know, sense if that Lord on your heart has given you a kind of a tug to, to increase. So let me pray, and then uh, we've got one more song we'll sing, and go about our days. Lord, you are a good God, and as we consider this practice of tithing, as we consider what it means to be generous, we pray that you would um, cultivate that generous heart in us. Lord, as we think about things like the fruit of the Spirit, those virtues that you have put in us, it's not something we can force ourselves to manufacture, but it's something that your Holy Spirit dwells within us and challenges us in. And so, God, we pray that we would be a people who are generous and loving towards others, towards your kingdom. And so, guide us, Lord. Bring conviction in places we need conviction and give us contentment in places that we need contentment. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.